Amen. On this snowy Lord's Day. I'm actually surprised to see how many of you are here, but maybe I shouldn't be surprised. You love the Lord. You love his word. Not saying that those who aren't here don't, but you're here. (laughs) And just for a point of clarification, the toddlers and babies, you can still send them over there if you want. They don't have to go. We love, we love a good cry every once in a while, but we're just canceling the Bible beginners. So, all right, let's dive into God's holy and inspired word. If you'd turn with me to the book of Genesis and the sixth chapter, and then stand with me for the reading of God's word. All right, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 22. Genesis 6, 9 through 22. This is God's word. <clears throat> These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among those in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence, and because of them, excuse me, Filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms. You shall cover it inside and out with pitch. Now this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and complete it to one cubit from the top. And set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. As for me, behold, I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall breathe its last. But I will establish my covenant with you. You shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. It shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind and of the animals after their kind. Every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible, Gather it to yourself, and it shall be for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. (coughs) Well, it's been a wild 1,500 years. Seems like just yesterday we were going from total delight to total depravity as Adam and Eve fell in the garden seems like just yesterday we were reading about that sweet little bundle of joy, Cain, 
As he came into the world, the first baby born of human conception, the first little boy who entered into life with all the hope of the world upon his shoulders as his mom likely gazed into the eyes of her child and thought, here is the promised seed. Here is the seed who will strike the head of the serpent. Our misery is over. Our suffering is over. Our time of spiritual separation from God is over. Cain has arrived. But this hope was soon dashed to pieces as it, it was quickly discovered that uh, and realized that this man was not of the spiritual seed of the woman, but in fact of the serpent himself as he slew his brother Abel, innocent Abel, before lying to God, then playing the victim and sulking off into infamous obscurity. It seems like just yesterday that we read of a renewed hope, the renewed anticipation of the seed of righteousness as Seth, Seth was then born into the world to replace Abel. As this new son would in fact be the first in the line of the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate savior, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. The text says when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness. According to his image, named him Seth. And then it begins. Ten men. Ten men listed in Genesis 5. Ten who, though it may seem to us like yesterday when Brad took us through that text, lived for some 1,500 years on this earth before coming to our text this morning. For some 1,500 years, death reigned supreme on the earth. Even over those in the line of Seth. Eight of the ten men throughout that genealogy died, physically speaking. You remember that phrase, and he died, and he died. Adam lived 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 912 years, and he died. Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, you know Jared. Uh, Jared lived 962 years, fathered Enoch. Enoch walked with uh, God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, but Enoch did not die. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. However, Enoch's son, Methuselah, he died, as did his son, Lamech. Lamech died at the ripe old age of 777, not before he too had a son when he was 182. Lamech called his name Noah. Noah. He said, this one will give us rest from our work and from the pain of our hands arising from the ground which Yahweh has cursed. Now the only other man in Genesis 5 who did not die was Noah. Not yet, anyhow. Not yet. His physical death is looming large on the horizon, just like all of our physical deaths are looming large on the horizon, but not yet. Yahweh still has work for Noah. The Lord God still has a line to preserve through Noah. Noah, whom verse 8 says, found favor or grace in the eyes of Yahweh. Now, this is very important, and I want you to look at this in your own Bibles here. Uh, I want to see if Jared lived 962 years, actually. Jared lived 162 years. Excuse me. 
That was tripping me up because I know that uh, Adam was the longest. Anyway, uh, 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch. So it was 962 years. Okay, that was tripping me up for some reason. Anyway, I want you to look at your own Bibles at verse 8. This is very important here. It says, verse 8 says, Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of Yahweh. Now, this is very important here. Notice the text doesn't say Noah earned favor in the eyes of Yahweh. It doesn't say that he attained the favor of Yahweh. It doesn't say that Noah acquired or purchased or strove for the favor of Yahweh. It says he found favor. He found the grace of God. The divine favor, the sweet, sweet, amazing grace of Yahweh was already there. Noah simply found it. He found what was already there, meaning it was a predetermined grace. It was a sovereignly, divinely granted grace bestowed upon Noah before he, he did anything, either good or bad, right? Well, how do we know this? Well, we know this because verse 9 doesn't come before verse 8. Verse 8 comes before verse 9. Okay, look at the text again. If you take nothing else from today, let it be this. Because it may relieve, again, it may lift a tremendous burden from your soul which says that you have to somehow earn favor from a holy God based off something that you do, including your believing unto righteousness. That's not how this works. Our faith is not what saves us. Our belief is not what saves us. It's the object of our faith who saves us. It's the one whom we have faith in that saves us. The one who originally supplies our justifying faith by his grace alone, just like he did with Noah. Look at that in your own Bibles there. See it with your own eyes. God says, everyone on the earth, all of mankind is corrupt. They're wicked, evil. Verse 5, every thought of their heart is only evil continually. And I'm going to wipe them all out. All, verse 8, but Noah. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. And now, now the righteousness comes. Verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among those in his generations. Noah walked with God. You see that? Verse 8, Noah found favor. Verse 9, Noah was righteous. It doesn't say, Noah was righteous, so he found favor. Noah was blameless, so he found favor. Noah walked with God, so he found favor with God. No, no, no. It says right there, Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And as a result of that favor, as a result of that sovereign, predetermined grace which Yahweh bestowed upon him from before the foundation of the world, as a result of that grace, Noah was a righteous man. Noah was blameless. That doesn't mean he was sinless. He wasn't perfect, but he was whole. He was complete. Why? Because he was justified in the sight of a holy God. And why? Because he was favored by God. Not by any doing of his own, but only because of God's sovereign electing grace. You can see it right there. I'm not trying to force anything into this here. Eight comes before nine. It always has. Just like Ephesians 2.8 comes before Ephesians 2.9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. The grace and the faith which justify are both a gift from the sovereign Lord of all creation. As they come as a result of the same divine favor extended to Noah, not based on anything he did, or else he would boast. Men love to boast about themselves. He would boast, but he can't do it in this case. It's been that way since the beginning of time, since the beginning in the garden uh, in 4000 BC. It was that way with Noah in 2500 BC. It was that way a thousand years later when God told Moses, I didn't choose Israel because you were the greatest of all people. It was that way when Jesus told the disciples, "You, you didn't choose me, I chose you. It was that way in 60 AD as as Paul penned the letter to the Ephesians. And it's that same way today, even as we read this text this morning. If you are saved, if you are truly saved, you are saved because you found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. Not because of your righteousness, not because of your blamelessness or your walking with him, not because of your charm, not because of your charisma or stunning good looks or high IQ or low body mass index, nor for any other reason, but only, only because of his sovereign good pleasure. And I know what some may be thinking. Sheesh, here we go again with this divine election stuff. Okay, we get it, dude. Good night. Is that what you're saying, though? (laughs) Listen, I know we talk about this a lot, but it's only... Because this is absolutely worth talking about and celebrating and reveling in and reminding ourselves of all the time. Plus, it's unavoidable when you go verse by verse through the scriptures. It's everywhere in the scriptures, including right here in Genesis chapter 6. So, obviously, the Lord wants us to trust him in this area. So, believe it. Trust it. Don't fight it. Cling to it. Uh, Embrace it. Cherish it. Let... God's sovereign electing grace be the down comforter you snuggle up in every night to keep warm. Let it be the anchor of your weary soul. Let it be that truth that you hold fast to until your dying day when all around your soul gives way. Let Yahweh's efficacious grace be your hope and stay. To, To fight the absolute sovereignty of God and salvation would not only be an exercise in futility, but it would only produce within you a miserably conflicted spirit. I've seen it happen many times. Many men and women who can't come to full terms with the reality that sinful man is saved by the sovereign grace of God alone. But I'm here to tell you on the authority of God's word, including right here in Genesis 6, verses 8 through 9, our salvation is all of grace. And our salvation is all of God. James Boyce said, this is a great biblical principle, namely that the grace of God always comes before anything. We imagine in our unsanctified state that God loves us for what we are intrinsically or for what we have done or who we can become, but God does not love us because of that. Nor is he gracious to us because of that. On the contrary, he loves us solely because he loves us. He is gracious to us only because he is. Noah was righteous, justified. 
blameless among his contemporaries in this wicked and evil generation. Everything all right, guys? All right. He, he was uh, blameless among his contemporaries in this evil generation. In fact, he was the only righteous. Noah, like his grandfather Enoch, walked with God. But he was only able to walk with God and believe in God and obey God and do everything he's about to do over these next few chapters for, for God because he found favor from God. He found that favor was extended to him by Yahweh himself. That's it. It's the same way with us. We are only able to be justified by faith in Christ because in the sovereign grace of God, he granted us both the faith to believe and then to, as Paul says, walk in the good works which he prepared for us beforehand. That's it. I'm just reading the inspired text here. They're not my words. They're God's words. But because they're his words, they're my words too. And they should be your words as well. Uh, Verse 8 comes before verse 9. Noah found favor. Therefore Noah was righteous, was blameless, walked with God. Now this is extremely, this is an extremely important foundation we had to set for what's about to take place in our text for this morning and over the next couple of weeks, namely the wrath of an infinitely holy God being poured out on all flesh, all except for one guy, his wife, and six other human beings. Eight souls, eight persons, Peter says. Eight persons out of all humanity that was on the earth during that time. Hundreds of millions of people. Some, people, some think billions of people were on the earth at this time. But billion, millions of, of men, women, and children, and little boys, and little girls, and babies even. Grandmas, grandpas, aunts, uncles, friends, family from the greatest to the least, we're all about to feel the righteous wrath and fury of the Lord Most High. It's terrible. It's terrible. Leading some to ask, how could a loving God do such a thing? How could the God you choose to worship kill all those people? Well, it is terrible. It's absolutely terrible, but our God is a holy God. He's perfectly holy. He's perfectly just. He pays folks their wages, right? And the wages of sin is death. All these people, this earth full of people, were about to receive the wages for their sin, for their corruption, even that which they inherited from their great-great-granddaddy, Adam, their federal head, our federal head, our representative. When he fell, we all fell, right? Just like us, all these people were conceived of and born in sin. And therefore, they were under the just condemnation or just judgment of a holy God already. And and just like today, should the Lord tarry, should he postpone his glorious coming in the clouds to call his church home, they all died. Just like we will all die. So then, how are these eight saved? I mean, this is what this account is all about, right? A salvation from the judgment of God. Yahweh says, everyone's going to die. Everyone's gone, except for you, Noah, and your wife, and your three boys and their wives. You will be spared. You will be saved 
rescued, delivered. But why? And how? Well, look at verse 10. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Let's tackle the why first. Why are Noah and his family saved? Answer, to preserve the godly line. The seed remains. The promise of a deliverer coming from the seed of a woman remains. Noah had a son named Shem, who had a son named Arpashad. Flip over a couple pages to Genesis 11, you'll see the significance of Arpashad, or Arpashad. Verse 12, Arpashad, the father of Shelah, the father of Eber, the father of Peleg, the father of Ru, the father of Serug, <clears throat> the father of Nahor, the father of Terah, the father of a man named Abram. Noah is ten men from Adam and Abram. Uh, or Abram is ten men, ten men from Noah. Okay, so Noah is smack dab in the middle of from Adam who was given the promised seed in Genesis 3 and Abraham, who was also given the promise that the whole world would one day be blessed through him. Now, if you go to Luke chapter 3, you'll see that very same list of names, including Adam and Seth and Noah and, and Shem and Abraham, all the way down to Jesus Christ himself. God preserves the line, which in Genesis 6 is now down to two. He spares his remnant, which is now down to eight. We're again told in verse 11 <clears throat> that the earth was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. You remember in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, Yahweh told man, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Well in Genesis chapter 6, we see that man had indeed filled the earth but he filled it with violence. Man had given birth to and multiplied violence or Hamas in spade. I didn't know the Hebrew word for violence was Hamas until last week. Of course, in Arabic, it means zeal, zeal. Interesting, considering current events. This was a far from a nice place to live. This was like the inner city on steroids. This was like Mad Max, apocalyptic, sell your kids for a gas can type stuff here. Uh, Matthew Henry said there, were, there was no order nor regular government. No man was safe in the possession of that which he had the most clear and incontestable right to. No, not the most innocent life. There was nothing but murders, rapes, and plunder. Note, he said, wickedness as it is in the shame of human nature, so it is in the ruin of human society. You take away conscience and the fear of God and men become beasts and devils to one another, like the fishes of the sea where the greater devours the less. Sin fills the earth with violence and so turns the world into wilderness, into a cockpit. You seen the news lately? Both abroad and here at home? Pretty good description of it. Another commentator defined Hamas as the cold-blooded and unscrupulous infringement of the personal right of others, motivated by greed and hate and often making use of physical violence and brutality. And the earth at this point was filled with violence, committed by a people whose hearts were filled with evil, every, not most, but 
Every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually, including the hearts of Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives. At some point, anyhow, right? That was their inherited nature. They were born enemies of God, born under his judgment already. Jesus says the very same thing in John 3.18, which means... The real question here in Genesis chapter 6 is not how a loving God could destroy millions of men, women, and children in this judgment, but how could he save eight of them? Right? That's right. How could he even save eight of them? The real question is not how, how could all these millions of people perish under God's mighty hand like that, but how could he spare any one of them? And the answer is by his sovereign grace alone. It all comes back to his amazing grace, to his steadfast love, that chesed, that that loyal love that he has for his people. He could have killed Noah and his family right then and there and started all over again. But he didn't. He had to keep his promise. He had to keep that line alive. He had to keep that seed alive. It's the same way today. Oh, how could a loving God ever send anyone to eternal hell? That's too awful. That's too harsh. We'll just have to tweak his word a little bit. We'll have to redefine his character a little bit. When actually, anyone who sincerely studies the text and sees the history of mankind from Genesis to Revelation has to walk away saying, how could this infinitely holy and perfect righteous God save any of us from what we so rightly deserve? And not only that, but the means by which he does so the sending of himself, the very Son of God who is with God from the beginning, who was God, to this earth to die in our place to accomplish so great a salvation? How could he do such a thing? Why would he do such a thing? And the answer is the same. It's all by his grace and it's all for his glory. Now, practically speaking here, if God were going to spare these eight in his slaughter of the millions, he's going to have to save some. By, he's going to have to save them by some means, right? So he tells Noah, make for yourself an ark. And I want you to notice two things here. First of all, this is all God, okay? Noah would swing the hammer. Noah would work the saw, but it's God who architects and orchestrates the whole thing. A good illustration of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But the Lord reigns over all the details. In fact, Noah doesn't even talk in this chapter here. Notice that. He doesn't talk in the next chapter either. Or the next. We don't hear a peep from Noah throughout the entire flood account. Not until late chapter 9 when he curses one of his sons for beholding his nakedness does Noah have any lines in this at all more on that one in a few weeks but Noah isn't the lead in this show this is not Noah's ark this is Yahweh's ark Noah's just a guy he's just a guy like the rest of us who was who was shown divine favor here 
Now, his work would certainly be revered and celebrated in Scripture. He will be in the hall of faith in, in Hebrews chapter 11. He's a type of Christ in that God used him to spare seven other souls and continue the messianic line. But the flood account is not really about Noah as much as it, it is about God, right? This is about God. I think a lot of folks in the American church need to be reminded of this from time to time. It's not about you, ultimately. You're not the main character in this plan of redemption. God is. Christ is. Now, I don't say that to be harsh. I mean, I'm one of the people who I'm saying it's not about. It's not about me either, thank God. Maybe we should put a sign out front there, Lakewood Bible Chapel. See how many people we can attract into this church. Lakewood Bible Chapel, where it's not about you. I can see it now. Actually, if I just wanted to put a sign out there that says, Lakewood Bible Chapel, we're not for everyone. <laughs> I know we're not for everyone because we know not everyone likes to hear preaching that ultimately is not about them, but about the Lord and his word, right? I don't think we'll put those signs out there, though. You never know. You never know. Yahweh speaks again now in verse 13. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms or nests. You shall cover it inside and out with pitch. Notice, this isn't a strategy session here. He's not asking for Noah's input here. These are commands. This is how you shall make it. Noah, the length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and complete it to one cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. And you shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Now, this is the point of the sermon where folks usually say something about Noah enduring the mockery and scorn of all the people as he constructed this box. And that's what it is, by the way. It's, it's a big rectangular box. It's not a ship. It's a box. But this is where you, you, you'd usually hear folks say, oh man, Noah, he was scorned. He was ridiculed. He was made fun of by the passers-by as he was working on this ship or in this box. Oh, how they jeered him and mocked him. But I got to tell you, I spent a considerable amount of time looking. I didn't see any mention of him being mocked or made fun of anywhere. I didn't see that. If he were to be mocked, this would be the place that we'd see it. Peter called him a preacher of righteousness, and we know that those who preach truth will face certain scorn and hatred of the wicked among us, but we don't see anything like that explicitly stated here. We hear of people eating and drinking and, and being married and being given in marriage, but no real mockery of this guy. If you know of such a passage that says Noah was mocked, I'd love to talk with you after the service because I didn't see it anywhere. And if it's there, I'll correct myself next time I'm up here. What we do know, again, is that God said, make an ark. Now this word ark is not the typical word for ark as in chest or trunk or coffin, aron. This, work is, uh, this word for ark used here is teva. And it's only used here to refer to the vessel that Noah built, which again was a box. 
a rectangular box, not a ship. There was no bow, there was no hull, no keel, no rudder or sail even. Why not? Because it wasn't for sailing. It was for floating. All he needed to do was float. He didn't need to travel around the globe. The the text says it was a rectangular box made out of gopher wood. We don't know anything about gopher wood other than it was in, uh, in abundance during this place and time before the flood. We also know, don't know if Noah did this all by himself or with his sons or if he hired a bunch of guys from a local village. We don't know that. He and his boys likely built it, but they probably had 60 to 70 years to finish it. But you've got to understand here, this thing was massive. It was massive. This floating box was ginormous. Again, Boyce says a cubit being anywhere from 17 to 24 inches means that the ark was about 450 feet long. It's one and a half American football fields. 75 feet wide, seven standard parking spaces, and 45 feet high, a typical four-story building. And it had three decks and over 100,000 square feet of deck space said there were a million cubic feet of space in it. This is the volume capacity of approximately 569 railroad boxcars. It had a floating capacity, its buoyancy, the total weight it could float, of almost 14,000 gross tons. Again, what we know is this thing was massive. And regardless of what modern-day mockers and critics say, it was more than sufficient to house all the animals and insects and birds and their food along with eight human beings for over a year on the water. Amen Amen. Amen to that. All the commentators use the same illustration. I think it's a good one. If you have 569 double-decker railroad boxes that could fit in this ark, 240 sheep could fit in each boxcar, meaning 136,560 sheep could fit on this ark. However, plenty of research has gone into this with the best estimations putting the number of pairs at 35,000 or 70,000 individual animals, one male, one female. Moreover, Boyce said, although we usually think of large animals when we think of the ark, elephants, hippopotamuses, giraffes, most land animals are, in fact, quite small. The average size is less than that of a sheep. Since 240 sheep fit comfortably into an average size two-deck railroad car, and since the volume of the ark would have been equal to 569 such cars, calculations show that the animals to be saved would have to fit into approximately, would have fit into approximately 50% of the ark's carrying capacity, leaving room for people, food, water, and whatever other provisions may have been necessary. Here's the reality of the situation. The ark was big enough. It was big enough. Genesis 6 through 8 is not some elaborate allegorical or poetic tale devised in the heart of Moses so that coloring book and children's Bible illustrators would make bank off it some five millennia later. No, no. This is an actual, historical logical, scientific account of the preservation of not only eight human beings in the midst of the millions who perish, but also these animals. Some used for later sacrifice, some used for the procreation and continuation of their kind. But at the end of the day, 
This is what God said happened. So it happened, right? And it happened just as he said it happened. It's, it's a sober, straightforward account of an actual historical event described to a T. Even Jesus said, yeah, this is what happened. This happened. He used it as an illustration of people who don't take the next coming judgment of God seriously. He said, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, uh, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For just as the days of Noah were, just as the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. As in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until that day Noah entered the ark and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. That's Jesus who said that. Jesus said that. In other words, man, it's coming. It's coming. The final judgment is coming. Don't be fools like those people in Noah's day, and live your life like it's not coming. Divine judgment is coming. The wrath and fury of the Lord Most High is coming. It's coming. And then remarkably, I think this is fascinating here, Noah doesn't even find out how this fury will come until verse 17. Look at this again. Yahweh is the only one who speaks here. He says, as for me, behold, I am bringing the flood. This is the first time we've even heard about the flood. I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall breathe its last. So we finally figure out this will be a flood. 17 verses in, even after the instructions of the vessel, it's a flood. Everyone is going to drown. Everyone's going to drown to death. What an awful way that, uh, to go that must be, to drown to death. You ever thought about that? I read a bunch of testimonies this past week of people who had almost drowned to death before they were rescued and revived. Most of them not pretty, not pretty. A lot of panic, a lot of claustrophobia, a lot of burning in the lungs, but only for a short time, 20 seconds, 60 seconds. It's not good, it's not good. One person, Garnett, described that feeling as they accidentally jumped into the deep end of a local pool and he realized that he started drowning. He said, I held my breath the best I could and scraped my fingers trying to find the wall, but I sunk deeper and deeper. The pool was so deep, the pressure popped my ears and my ears were burning horribly from the chlorine and other chemicals that made me feel as if I was burning. When you drown, your in instincts tell you to kick and to jump, and you're so desperate to get to that surface, you're acting as if you're running. You really can't help it. It's so frustrating because you know you're a lost cause, and you're in a constant state of panic. You're gagged by water, and you can't scream. People can't see you. You're down way too deep. You can only pray that they realize that something's wrong, but you have to wait. 
and waiting is the worst part of drowning. Eventually, your lungs start to burn. You're desperate for that sweet taste of oxygen. You want to go home. You keep thinking you can breathe. You're in absolute denial, but you just can't breathe. You start holding your throat. Your mind is haywire. You can't swim. You want to stop yourself from inhaling, and the pressure makes it feel like you're exploding. Eventually, your lungs give out. You take a deep, deep breath. You're desperate for satisfaction, craving to breathe so desperately, but you just feel the water fill you and make you heavier. You feel the weight of it clog all of your orifices. said, as I inhaled more and more water, I began to feel dizzy, then calm. I almost left my body. It felt like I was waking up from a deep, long nap, and I was still in the after-effects of it. I was on the pool floor now, too weak to do anything, and I was just so calm. Death didn't worry me, which is weird because I'm terrified of dying. He said, your vision starts to spot, and you start to hallucinate. There's no oxygen to your brain, so of course you're going to hallucinate, and eventually you just black out. And then you stand before an infinitely holy God. I added that last part. God says, Noah, I'm going to drown everyone. You're building that vessel because I'm sending the flood, Mabul. It's the only word reserved for this event, this flood. In fact, the word Mabul means the flood. The flood, not just any flood, but the flood, this flood. Noah, the flood is coming. It's not going to be pretty. There will be unimaginable horror. But I am grieved over the wickedness of men. I knew this would happen. This was not a surprise to me, but I am grieved. He said, I am sorry that I have, sa- I have made man. I regret it. Because now I have to blot them all out. So you better get to work now. That's the practical grace that Yahweh shows this man. He says, build this ark. More practical grace, more favor before the fury. Now we see the the promise grace, verse 18. Yahweh says, I will establish my covenant with you. You shall enter the ark, you and your sons, uh, excuse me, you, and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds after their kind and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. Now, would you look at that? Look at what God is saying. You don't have to go out on any hunting expeditions, Noah. You don't have to go out trapping, no turkey calling, no bird dogging, no calculating windage, no nets, no snares. You don't have to cover yourself in deer urine and climb up any trees. They will know you. They will come to you. They will come to you. How does that happen? Because God will draw them to you. It's migration. Not having by random chance. Are you kidding me with that? No, it's by divine providence, divine sovereignty. Noah, two of every kind will come to you. 
They'll come to you. You just got to keep them alive. Make a door, one entrance, one exit. Make a window for the air that goes all around the top of it to re- for relief from the stench. Get some oxygen flowing in there. Uh, then cover it all with pitch, he says. I guess this is some tar-like substance. He says, make a roof. This will be very important for the coming rain. Then sit back and watch as all these animals come to you. It's incredible. Verse 21. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. Again, there's more than enough room in here. But the gem in all this is not so much this massive ark, the animal migration, or even the flood, but again, the favor, the grace, the promise given to Noah that he and his family would be spared as the covenant that that God would go on to make in chapter 9. Indeed, I will establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood and there shall never again be a flood to destroy the earth. Notice he didn't say he wouldn't destroy the earth again. Just that it wouldn't be by water. More on that in a moment. First, we conclude this section, this chapter, by seeing a clear testimony of faith in action. Okay, true faith always works. True faith is always accompanied by true works which God prepared beforehand. It's been rightly said, faith and works are two sides of the same coin. Okay? Faith is pregnant with works. If you have true faith, it will give birth to good works. You can't have good works without true faith, and you can't have true faith without good works. Here in verse 22, we see that Noah's justifying faith, Hebrews chapter 11, was proven by his works. Thus Noah did all that God had commanded him to do. According to all that God had commanded him to do, so he did. God said, do this, and he did it. That's part of it, right? No easy believism. No cheap grace found in the Bible. We obey We fail, but we desire to obey and keep on obeying. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments, John says. Noah knew God. Noah loved God. Noah obeyed God. And it all came as a result of Noah's being shown favor by God. The favor before the fury, right? Now we're out of time here. But I would be remiss if I didn't send you on your way with some practical application. And honestly, I don't think the takeaway could be any clearer for us today. We are living in a world full of wickedness and corruption, where evil abounds, where death still reigns supreme, where a similar judgment from the heavens grows closer and closer by the second. Again, The covenant, the Noahic covenant mentioned here in in verse 18, later in chapter 9, spoke of Yahweh's never destroying this earth again by water. And, And the unchanging God of the heavens and the earth has indeed upheld that covenant, an eternal covenant for the past 5,000 years. But there's coming a day, my brothers and sisters, when Yahweh will once again pour out his righteous wrath upon this creation and, and upon all those who, did not bend the, who, who do not bend the knee to his Christ in humble submission. 
In fact, Peter says this very clearly in his second epistle, uh, chapter 3. You should see it in your own Bibles. Go ahead, you turn in there. Don't take my word for it. Second Peter, uh, chapter 3. And then look at uh, verse 3. The holy prophets and apostles said it. In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Now there are some mockers. And oh, do we have them today. They say the same thing. Where's your God now? Where's your Christ now? Did you see this? Did you see that? Where's God? Peter says, For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the whole world at that time was destroyed, being deluged with water. That's the flood. Destruction by the deluge. This is Genesis 6 through 8. But in Genesis chapter 9, Yahweh says, no, 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 that's not going to happen again. Final judgment of this corrupted and cursed earth will come by another means, you see. Verse 7, but by his word, the present heavens and the earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Okay, so not by water, but by fire. 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 I love it. I think MacArthur is the one who said it. He said, he's got all these climate activists running around, all these global warming people saying, oh, what are you doing to the earth? Just wait till they see what God does to it. (laughs) I just thought that was funny. But listen to the grace here, verse eight. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. But the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, who is the all that he's talking about here? Every man, woman, and child who has ever lived, all the wicked, unbelieving men and women of this godless age, all men and women in the godless time during the end of the earth, is that what he's talking about? That all men would come to repentance? No, then who's he talking about here? That's, that's right. He said, the Lord is patient toward you. Believers, Christians, beloved, children, saints, maybe those being saved even this morning or next week or next year. Maybe some of you who hear his call through his word this morning and are saved. He is not willing for any of his elect to perish in hell but for all of them to come to repentance, all who by sovereign grace alone will find favor in the eyes of Yahweh and be saved. He's gathering his elect even as we speak this morning for his salvation. For salvation, just like he did with Noah and his family. In Noah's day, it was into an ark. In our day, it's into Christ. Right? Just as the salvation of God's wrath came when 
And from God's wrath came when Noah and his wife and his boys and their wives, along with all those animals, went into the ark. Salvation from the wrath of an infinitely holy God only comes to us and our generation when we enter in through Christ. And that only comes, it only comes to those whom God favors. Are you one of those? That's the question. That's what I want to ask you this morning. Are you one of those? You say, well, how do I know? Well, do you believe his word? All of it? Do you trust in his Christ? Are you, are you one of those who will be spared from the righteous wrath of God by your God-given faith in the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of triumphant resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, his glorious ascension back up to the right hand of the Father? He is the only way to salvation. He is the only way to the Father. If you never have, I would plead with you to come to him, to cry out for his mercy at this moment. Ask him to save you through the glorious gospel of grace. Jesus says, all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Come to him this morning. Come to him on this snowy morning. If you already belong to him, I have good news for you, my brothers and sisters. I have great news for you as you leave this place today. Peter concludes his, his epistle with the hope of a day when we will live in a new heaven, on a new earth, in a place that is free from corruption, free from sin and death, free from the battle with our own flesh. It's a place free from corruption, free from wars and catastrophes. There will be no more tragedies, no more battles, no more fears, no more sickness, no more mourning, no more tears. And it's promised to those who are in Christ. And, and we can cling to this promise as tightly as we do to the grace of God who gives it. Peter says everything is going to burn. It's all going to burn. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that's what I want you to take with you as you leave this place this morning and venture out into this world full of chaos and corruption. Uh, the hope of the promises of God's word. We are living in Noahic-like times. The end is truly near, my friends, but like Noah, we have been shown tremendous favor and that we, we can be saved by the power of God's word. That we can read God's word. We can hear God's word. We can believe God's word. We can trust God's word. We can obey God's word. And even though we often fail, we can now live out the rest of our lives here on earth clinging to the hope of everlasting life in his presence. And it's all by his grace and all for his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer and we'll have Noel, come up and close us in musical worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the tremendous privilege to come together and hear your inspired word. We're grateful for it. We're grateful for this testimony of Noah and his family. And we look forward to this over the uh, next couple of weeks as well, diving deeper into it. But more than we appreciate hearing about Noah, Lord, we, we give you praise for 
what you've uh, taught us about the Lord Jesus Christ and your character and who you are and what you've done for us by your grace alone. We love you. We, we thank you for that. We long for that day when we're with you face to face. But for now, it's our joy and delight to give you praise uh, through musical worship. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.